1975, nobody envisioned that terror could come from above. With Jaws hitting theaters that summer, all of our fears swam below us. They would breach the surface, revealing jagged maws, able to spare a tooth when needed. People learned to fear the water, just as UFO enthusiasts would come to fear the sky. The UFO accounts of 1975 were often swallowed whole by one singular incident. You probably know it by name, the Travis Walton incident. We've told a few of the stories that 1975 had to offer. There was the David Stevens abduction, which occurred nearly two weeks before Travis's, as well as the Stonehenge incident involving liquor store owner George Obarski. It only seems fitting now to tell one of the most monumental tales in UFO history. What follows is, as best as I've been able to piece together, the details of what happened that day and the days after. My name is Rob Christofferson, and this is episode 20 of the Our Strange Skies podcast. Mike Rogers and his crew of six had been pulling long days and even weekends in the Apache Sitgreaves National Forest on a Forest Service contract. They'd been tasked to cut a fuel reduction strip, over 1,277 acres, at a site known as Turkey Springs. Brush that measured six inches or less in diameter was cleared, but unfortunately, they had fallen behind. The men were putting in 12-plus-hour days. They split into two groups, one that would run the chainsaws and the other that would stack the slash piles. The morning of Wednesday, November 5th, 1975, was the same as ever for Mike Rogers' crew. Rogers, along with Ken Peterson, John Gallette, Steve Pierce, Alan Dallas, Dwayne Smith, and 22-year-old Travis Walton showed up to the Turkey Springs site like they had for months. The contract's due date was in five days, and Rogers had already received one extension on it, so the crew worked hard, quitting around 6 p.m. that night. Night had settled into the trees. The seven men piled into Mike Rogers' battered old work truck. The smoker sat in back while the only three non-smokers, Rogers, Travis Walton, and Ken Peterson sat up front. Smoke was escaping from the rear windows when a strange light started to peek through the trees. The terrain was rough and the shock absorbers were long gone, but Travis was the first to catch sight of it. The vehicle went silent as the men crested a hill 
and the strange light bled out into the road before them. Further down the road, the source of the light came into view, in a clearing on the right-hand side of the road. One hundred feet from the stopped truck, a luminous disc-shaped object cast a milky yellow glow down upon a nearby slash pile. The craft resembled two pie pans pressed lip to lip, with a small bowl-shaped dome on top of it. It bore no windows, but the bottom of it was composed of a number of panels that cast an eerie glow on all it touched. Travis jumped out of the truck immediately, seized, as he would claim, with a sudden urgency to see the craft at a close range. From six feet away, he was mesmerized by the bottom of the craft, which was perfectly shaped. It began to emit a low set of beeping sounds. Travis heard them, and so did the crew. They were all calling for Travis to come back to the truck, but he ignored them. Along with the beeps, a low rumbling sound crept into the area. It reminded the witnesses of multiple large turbine generators starting up all at once, and it grew louder and louder. Travis snapped out of it and noticed a log jutting out from the slash pile. In the process of turning away from the craft, a numbing sensation hit him in the chest. He compared it to the sensation of being electrocuted with a high amount of voltage. The feeling spread throughout his entire body, and he heard a cracking sound before he blacked out. The crew, though, had a different view of things. The six witnessed a bluish-white beam hit Travis in the back. His outstretched body lifted into the air about a foot and flew back ten feet where Travis hit the ground and remained limp. The occupants of the truck were beside themselves with fear. They all cried out for Mike Rogers to book it, and book it he did. The old truck careened down the rugged mountain road. Rogers dodged the trees at a terrific speed, terrified at the idea that the craft could be coming for them next. Through the cacophony of voices in the cab, Rogers noticed that the sky was quiet and the woods were dark again. He slammed on his brakes a quarter mile later. An argument commenced about whether or not they should turn around and rescue their co-worker. Voices rose as the men spilled out of the truck, engaging in a full-blown argument. It was during this time, shortly before cooler heads would prevail, that Mike Rogers thought he saw a flash of white light shooting into the air. It took the crew a number of minutes to find the sight in the pitch blackness, but when they finally did, Travis was nowhere to be found. Rogers shined his headlights on the slash pile and the surrounding woods. The men cautiously searched the woods with unsteady hands, but after 20 minutes, they could find no sign of the 22-year-old logger. Due to the weight of it all, some of the men broke down and started to weep uncontrollably, including Mike Rogers himself. Some became physically ill due to the stress of the encounter, but they ultimately decided to drive to the town of Heber to contact the local police. Ken Peterson placed the call to the Navajo County Sheriff's Department. 
Mike Rogers was still too upset to place the call himself. They reached Deputy Chuck Ellison around 7.30, stating that Travis had gone missing. He made no mention of the UFO at the time. It was only later in person that the true nature of the story came out. Two of the men were still sobbing as Ken recounted their harrowing experience to the deputy. Soon after, Sheriff Marlon Gillespie and Undersheriff Ken Copeland arrived on the scene and accompanied Mike Rogers, Ken Peterson, Alan Dallas, and Chuck Ellison to the site to search for Travis. The men crept through the woods with flashlights and cast their searchlights as far as they could through the brush. All three law enforcement officers were suspicious of the men's story from the start. They spent an inordinate amount of time focusing on the path Travis took from the truck to the slash pile the UFO hovered over. The cold, hard ground offered no footprints. The pine needles in that area looked undisturbed. Nothing stood out about the area at all. If a UFO truly had hovered over the space, there was no evidence of it. No broken twigs, no scorch marks, nothing. The cold was a major concern, and Travis Walton's light jacket would be no match for the frigid temperatures. Ellison went back into town to call on more searchers. Mike Rogers stated that Travis's mom, Mary Kellett, should be notified. Mary was staying in a remote cabin ten miles from the site of Travis's disappearance in Bear Springs. She had no phone, so had to be notified in person. Mike was still emotional when he showed up at Mary's door with Undersheriff Copeland at 1 a.m. Mary greeted them with a gun through a partially opened door. She was a fiercely independent woman with a splash of paranoia. The story told to her came out in nervous fits, and Mary seemed to have trouble following it, asking Rogers to repeat himself at times. Once he was through, she asked a rather odd question. Had they told anyone else? Ken Copeland was immediately suspicious. He expected something more dramatic, and many skeptics would have similar suspicions over the years. What most failed to consider is that Mary Kellett raised six kids on her own. She never had a lot of money either, but she always made do. Being emotional in front of strangers was not something Mary ever seemed to be comfortable with, but as time wore on, the stress would eventually get to her. Mary was rushed to her daughter's house, where she called Dwayne, the second oldest Walton child, and the one who would typically take charge in dire situations. He left his home in Glendale immediately. More volunteers arrived early the next morning, including Forest Service personnel. John Gallette, Dwayne Smith, and Steve Pierce all feared returning to the site. The memories of that night were still too real. More than 50 searchers traipsed through the Apache Sitgreaves National Forest, searching every slash pile and rock. Travis's brothers, Dwayne and Don, had joined the search, along with his mother, Mary Kellett. There was a pair of individuals that stood out among the searchers. They were armed with a Geiger counter, surveying the immediate area where the UFO had been hovering. 
Mike Rogers approached the men and asked to have his crew checked with the instrument. While none of them pegged the meter, all of their hard hats were radioactive. These men never identified themselves and left a short time later. By Saturday morning, Sheriff Gillespie had called off the search under the belief that this was a murder case through and through. Rogers and Dwayne Walton were insistent that the search continue. They angrily showed up on Gillespie's door on Saturday morning, and later that afternoon, men on horseback and aircraft spotters returned to the woods to continue the search. Gillespie had done his best to downplay the UFO side of the story, but by Saturday, the press had caught wind of it and flooded the area. UFO investigators from Europe would visit the site, but the first on the scene was Fred Sylvanus. He interviewed Rogers on the evening of Saturday the 8th, with Dwayne by his side. Dwayne's behavior would become suspect. He would cut Mike off in the middle of a statement. It would make some remarks that debunkers would find suspicious. On the Sylvanus tapes, Dwayne claimed to have seen a UFO in broad daylight for half an hour in 1963, similar to the one that took Travis. Travis and Dwayne allegedly discussed UFOs on multiple occasions, and if they ever saw the opportunity, they were to make contact by any means necessary. Dwayne went on to say, quote, Travis performed just as we said we would, and he's received the benefits for it, end quote. You hope he has, Mike Rogers responded. Rogers was tense for the duration of the interview. His nerves were still shot three days after the incident. He was at odds with most of what Dwayne had to say, but the Walton sibling was adamant that Travis would be returned unharmed, because aliens don't kill people. Rogers would go on to express concern over the logging contract during that interview. The contract had already been extended once, and it was coming due on Monday the 10th. He hoped the Forest Service would take Travis's disappearance into consideration. It's important to note how concerned these two men were for Travis. Mike Rogers was frustrated with the search efforts, and let it show during the interview. Quote, Nobody seemed that interested in searching that extensively. No bloodhounds were brought in, and now it's too late. I've been mentioning it every day. End quote. The police continued to push a different narrative. Snowflake Town Marshal Sanford Flake firmly believed this was a money-making opportunity for the Walton brothers. They had faked the entire thing with nothing more than a large balloon. Hilariously enough, Flake's wife criticized him, stating that his idea was just as far-fetched as Dwayne Walton's. The marshal had a long-standing feud with the young Walton. During his disappearance, he brought a film crew with him to a Bear Springs ranch he believed Travis was hiding out in. The joke was ultimately on Flake when they never found him. Law enforcement focused heavily on Mary Kellett, interrogating her multiple times during the time frame Travis went missing. After walking in on one interrogation, Dwayne pulled the officer aside and told him not to come back unless they had something tangible to talk about. On Monday the 10th, 
Mike Rogers and his crew were subjected to polygraph tests at the insistence of Sheriff Gillespie. The tests were administered by Cy Gilson, a polygraph examiner with the Department of Public Safety. Each of the men underwent four 20-minute tests. They were asked questions like, Did you cause Travis Walton any serious physical harm last Wednesday afternoon? And, Did you tell the truth about actually seeing a UFO last Wednesday when Travis Walton disappeared? With the exception of Alan Dallas, all of the men passed. Dallas had a criminal past, and it's believed that that factored into his test results. It convinced law enforcement that the men probably hadn't been murderers, and even Sheriff Gillespie himself, who had been suspicious from the start, did a complete 180. While one man sleeps, another wakes. Near midnight, Travis awoke face down on the side of a highway. He turned over in time to see the curved bottom of a silvery craft, casting a bright light, shoot away quickly into the night sky. His legs were shaky and he felt a little weak. He recognized the road he was on and sprinted to a nearby gas station, where a bank of three phones sat outside. He was miles away from where he had been taken, but he had the presence of mind to call his brother-in-law, Grant Neff. At first, Neff believed him to be a prank caller. The voice on the other end sounded faint at first, and the caller a bit hazy, as if he was suffering from delirium. This is Travis, the voice said. I'm in a phone booth at the Heber gas station, and I need help. Come and get me. The voice, whoever it was, didn't sound like Travis at first, and Neff explained that the guy had the wrong number. The entire Walton family had been receiving a number of prank calls in those five days. It had become a tiring affair for everyone involved, and Neff desperately wanted to go back to bed. But the voice was insistent. A panic took over, and the voice that came back through was terrified. It's me, Grant. I'm hurt, and I need help badly. You come and get me. Neff flew out the door, headed for Dwayne's house. Together, the pair drove up on the bank of phones, and in the middle booth, a slumped figure was there. The grizzled figure had approximately five days' worth of beard growth on his face, and appeared to be in shock, but otherwise appeared to be fine. He was wearing the same clothes he had worn that Wednesday. They then decided to bring Travis to Mary Kellett's house for a fresh change of clothes. He spoke of encountering strange creatures on the craft with eyes that scared him tremendously. He believed that he had only been gone for a matter of hours. That's when Dwayne told him it had been more like five days. Travis placed a hand to his face and he could feel it. The scrape of his hand against the hair sounded like sandpaper scratching toward its true surface. At his mother's house, Travis changed his clothes and stepped on his mother's scale. The grizzled lumberer had lost 11 pounds. During the ride there, Travis kept repeating a similar phrase, mantra-like, don't let the police know I'm here, 
get me some medical help. They agreed and decided to bring Travis to a physician in Phoenix. Sheriff Gillespie, though, received a tip at 2.30 a.m. from a phone company employee that someone had called the Neff household from the Heber gas station's bank of phone booths. Gillespie then alerted Chuck Ellison and Lieutenant E.M. Romo. The pair dusted the phones for prints, and the first two produced a number of prints, but it was unclear if any of them were Travis's. Officers on duty that morning were dispatched to keep an eye out for Walton family vehicles. Law enforcement officers were placed at strategic positions, watching vehicles heading to and from Heber, Taylor, and Snowflake. Deputy Glenn Flake was stationed at the junction of Highways 77 and 277, and he would be sent to Mary Kellett's home to see if Travis was there. When he drove up early that morning, there were lights suspiciously on in the home. Dwayne was there, and he was immediately suspicious. Travis was still there at the time, but they hid him well. The two Walton brothers would slip away undetected, and Dwayne would phone Sheriff Gillespie later that morning to tell him that Travis had been taken to a hospital in Tucson. In reality, he was driven to see Dr. Lester Stewart on the recommendation of Ground Saucer Watch member William Spaulding. Spaulding had approached Dwayne early on to offer a free medical examination after Travis returned. They made arrangements for 9 a.m. on the morning of the 11th. Travis slept for just a few hours when they hastily arrived at a rundown hotel near the airport. Dwayne and Travis were apprehensive. The building looked shady as hell, and it took them a few moments to find Dr. Lester Stewart's office. The word hypnotherapist stood out in big, bold letters. They walked into the stuffy office devoid of air conditioning. The sounds of planes arriving and departing were a brief distraction from the dated decor. The curtains were yellowed, and there appeared to be no medical equipment of any kind inside. Dwayne quickly took charge and demanded to know if the man was a medical doctor. After lying about it for a number of minutes, Stewart finally admitted that he was not licensed to practice medicine in the state of Arizona. The doctor wasn't even expecting him in the first place, and seemed to forget that he was a member of Ground Saucer Watch. The Walton stormed out of Stewart's office soon after. Many of the Walton family members were being flooded with phone calls. It appeared that the press had caught wind of Travis's return, most likely from local police. Dwayne's girlfriend had been fielding calls most of the morning, including calls from Spaulding himself. When Dwayne aggressively refused Spaulding's help, the GSW turned on Travis. They went to the media and maligned the experiencer. Travis's saving grace was Coral Lorenzen, one of the founders of the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, or APRO, who, after some convincing, arranged to have Travis examined by a real doctor. In fact, it was two doctors, and they just so happened to make house calls. 
Dr. Joseph Saltz and Dr. Howard Candell performed an exhaustive examination of Travis. They arranged for more tests the next day, and they took a urine specimen that Travis had made when he was taken to his mother's house. Sheriff Gillespie also paid a visit to Dwayne Walton's residence to close out the missing person's case. Because Dwayne and Travis were staying clear of the press, William H. Spaulding, for a time, became the only mouthpiece on the case. He cast aspersions on Walton's character and claimed that the brothers were in on it together. Travis would eventually talk to the press on a program called Face the State. Here's a clip from that interview. Um, a, a sunset or something, I was about to comment on. We came past the thicket that where we were looking through to where we could see more clearly and uh, we saw a UFO hovering in the air about 30 yards off to the side of the road. Everybody started to yelling and uh, they stopped the truck. And I, uh, I wanted to get a closer look and uh, I got out of the truck and I started over there. Everyone was yelling that I should come back to stop. I stopped and looked back and uh, somebody called my name and I turned back around and it started to make a noise and started to move and I took one step. I crouched down behind the log that was there, and just as I started to raise up, I, w I was just going to stand up. I didn't have any intention of going any closer, but it was just as if I was struck. I, it was kind of a, a physical blow to, it just knocked me back. I don't remember seeing any flash of light or anything like what they described. I just, I just lost consciousness. Uh, when I regained consciousness. Another party would enter the picture and offer up their resources in exchange for access to the test results. And that party was the National Enquirer. The Enquirer had contacted the Lorenzans shortly after they made arrangements for Travis's examination. Seeing as how they didn't have the funds to match, the Lorenzans agreed to the deal. This was not the first time that they had done something like this. If you recall in Minnesota 6, taken in Kentucky, I mentioned how the Inquirer paid for the therapy the women that were abducted near Stanford, Kentucky would receive. They made arrangements to put Travis and Duane up in a hotel and for the brothers to meet with the press. The examination, conducted by Drs. Saltz and Candell, found that Travis was in good health. Through a battery of x-ray testing, as well as an EKG and an EEG, they could find nothing wrong with the logger. There were no bruises of any kind on his body, and in fact, the only abnormality they noted was a two millimeter red spot on his right elbow, which was indicative of a needle puncture. 
Skeptics would point to this as evidence of drug use. But Travis's urinalysis came back negative for any kind of drug. He had taken a urine sample shortly after arriving at his mother's house following his return. The doctors also noted how there was no acetone in his system, which was unusual, because if he had been gone, and he didn't in fact eat anything, then his body should have started to break down its own fat, resulting in ketones being present in his urine. Again, skeptics would use these results to say that the entire event was a hoax, but it still doesn't explain how he lost 11 pounds. Dwayne and Travis were interviewed extensively by reporters Jeff Wells, Nick Longhurst, and Chris Fuller on Thursday, November 13th, as well as APRO founder and international director Jim Lorenzen. A hypnosis session was conducted by Dr. James Harder in the presence of Drs. Candell and Saltz, along with Dr. Gene Rosenbaum, Dr. Beryl Rosenbaum, Dr. Robert Ganelin, Dwayne Walton, and the three Inquirer reporters. While he did not recall any additional experiences than those he had already presented, the details of the incident they did know became clearer, including the details of his time on the ship. At one point during the session, when they had encountered a mental block, Walton claimed that he would die if they attempted to break through it. When Sheriff Gillespie had finally caught up to Travis on Tuesday the 11th, Travis himself wanted to take a polygraph test as soon as possible. He had arranged to have one done by Cy Gilson, the man who had administered polygraphs to the entire logging team, and they all agreed that it had to be done in secret. On Friday the 14th, as Gillespie left his office, he was followed by a number of reporters. Word had gotten out that the test was going to be administered, and the Waltons were none too pleased. Their nerves were on edge about the whole thing now, and Dwayne accused Gillespie of leaking the information to the press, which he probably didn't. Rumors continued to fly in the papers, calling the incident a hoax. By not talking to the press, Travis was doing damage to his own case, as the local papers were going to Dr. Lester H. Stewart for any information about it. He accused Travis of being a drug user who was addicted to LSD. But as we know, the medical tests he received ruled the possibility of drugs out. In fact, Travis Walton was vehemently opposed to drug use. He didn't even drink alcohol. The dude was completely straight-edge. After the first scheduled polygraph test fell through, the National Enquirer became insistent that Travis take one as soon as possible. James Harder and the remaining APRO affiliates thought better of it. Travis was still distraught from the incident. His nerves were fried, and there was a good chance that he would fail the test. Reporter Paul Jenkins assured Travis, though, that the results of the test would not be released without Travis's permission, so he consented. Jim Lorenzen contacted John J. McCarthy, who was the director of Arizona's Polygraph Laboratory. He agreed to perform the test, but it would not be a good experience for Travis. McCarthy practically badgered the forestry worker. 
He pushed him to admit to past drug usage and to an incident involving forged checks for which he did a brief stint in prison for. McCarthy continued to badger Walton and declared that he had failed the test and refused to retest him. Basically, McCarthy was a whole dick about it. It's safe to say that no one was happy with the results, but all parties involved agreed to keep them confidential. Travis would go on to take another polygraph test in February of 1976 and would pass it along with Dwayne and their mother, Mary Kellett. In the following months, the case would largely be dismissed by other UFO groups. NICAP believed that Travis had perpetrated a hoax, or that the entire incident was some type of psychological aberration. The National Enquirer did their best to kill the story in-house. They were of the belief that his entire experience was a psychological anomaly as well. The true enemy of this case is a man well known to this podcast and to anyone who's ever researched the subject. Philip J. Ass. I mean class. Yeah. In the UFO Encyclopedia, 3rd edition, Jerome Clark described class as more a prosecutor than an investigator. In this instance, he began with a 17-page document that attacked nearly everyone, including law enforcement. Class made himself an enemy of everyone rather quickly. He wielded host claims like a poor wizard who was terrible at spellcasting. He claimed that Jupiter was responsible for the UFO sighting, that the Waltons were actively trying to hoax everyone, and he blamed the police for being completely incompetent. Class's only true blow came when he revealed the results of the McCarthy polygraph tests to the world. McCarthy was unhappy with the attention the case was still getting, and because Travis would go on to win $5,000 from the National Enquirer for being the most important UFO case of 1975. The man spilled everything, from Travis's past drug use, his criminal record, everything. Class's main belief was that, because of the logging contract falling behind again, Rogers had already received an 84-day extension on it that was coming due on November 10th. Essentially, Class believed they had committed governmental fraud, but according to Jim Lorenzen in the APRO Bulletin, this is incredibly unlikely, for a couple of reasons. Quote, The facts are that Rogers was behind on the contract in question since he had been working on three other contracts simultaneously. He had collected on the other contracts and therefore was not in financial trouble at all. Also, it was to his advantage and to the advantage of the crew to work as long as possible on the contract. Rogers knew from experience that a small-time overrun would be tolerated, provided they were making good progress. In addition, a contract could be defaulted without serious penalty or prejudice without going to all the trouble of creating an excuse. Rogers knew this because he had defaulted a contract a few years earlier. Rogers had requested an inspection from the Forest Service to take place on November 7th, which would enable him to collect for the past three weeks' work. The UFO incident prevented the inspection and held up monies already earned. 
end quote. Shortly after the incident, Rogers was awarded another contract by the U.S. Forest Service, which only required the use of a two-man machine, for which he rehired Travis to assist him with. The remaining five crew members were temporary workers, and if they had been disgruntled over losing out on work, it's safe to assume that they would be coming forward claiming the entire event was a hoax, but none of them ever did. It's rumored that Philip Class offered the youngest crew member, Steve Pierce, $10,000 to come forward saying that the entire thing was a hoax. He never did. In fact, no member of that logging crew has ever claimed otherwise. Even when Alan Dallas ran afoul of the law after this incident and confessed to previous crimes, he still claimed that the UFO incident was true. It's interesting to note other UFO incidents occurring in the area at that time. A week after Travis had returned, Deputy Glenn Flake was on desk duty when the sheriff's station in Pine Top broke in on the dispatcher's radio with the deputies talking to each other about a strange light hovering over the mountains east of them. The light was not moving and would change colors from blue to red to white. Soon, the St. John Sheriff Station, 40 miles east of Snowflake, broke in saying they were watching the same thing. Deputy Flake went outside and could see the object himself. The various deputies watched it for over 30 minutes, then grew tired of watching and went back to their duties. This area seemed to be no stranger to occurrences like these. A year before... Jim Carter was drilling water holes on the Glen Flake Ranch, about 10 miles out of Snowflake. One night, the driller saw a bright light pop on right above the drilling rig and light up the whole area. The men saw a very big object hovering overhead, so bright they had to shield their eyes. It stayed in the same position for two or three minutes, then it abruptly rose up, the light turned off and it was gone. Seconds later, a car came racing toward them, and the foreman jumped out, upset, asking if they had seen it too. After this happened, Carter asked the Flakes if he could go down to their ranch at night to watch for these UFOs, and he claimed to see them there. About the same time of the driller's experience, Rue Hunt was driving the high school activity bus from Snowflake to Heber with a dozen or so football players when they all saw a large flying object hovering over a farm field to their left. It was cigar-shaped and glowing, about the size of an airliner. He stopped the bus and they all got out. As they watched it, it shot straight up and disappeared silently. Two other local citizens claimed, separately, that they had been driving when they saw a light above their cars that caused their cars to shut down. Both times when the lights left, the car started once again. In the same time period, there was a long series of sightings throughout the area that had farmers reporting finding their cattle inexplicably mutilated in their fields at the same time that UFOs were reported overhead. There were a few other abduction cases reported in 1975, leading up to the Travis Walton incident. 
In a previous episode, I discussed the abduction of a young man named David Stevens in Maine. If you're unfamiliar with that episode, a link will be available in the show notes. Just a few months before Travis's ordeal, on August 12, 1975, Air Force Sergeant Charles Moody would allegedly be abducted less than 300 miles southeast of Turkey Springs. He was a 32-year-old, 13-year veteran with a high security clearance at Holloway Air Force Base in Alamogordo, New Mexico, that had logged over 700 hours as a flight mechanic, as well as a private aircraft pilot. That night, he had finished work at 11.30 and had heard a meteor shower would be visible around 1 a.m. He parked off the road at the edge of the White Sands Missile Range and sat on the front fender of his car. The night was clear and he watched eight or nine bright meteors streak by for the next 45 minutes. At about 1.30, he saw a dull metallic object appear to drop out of the sky and hover with a wobbling motion approximately 100 feet in front of him and 10 to 15 feet off the ground. It began to move slowly towards his car, so he became frightened and got back into it. But it wouldn't start, as if there was no battery, which was strange because he kept his car in top shape. The object stopped and hung dead in the air about 70 to 80 feet away, the same distance from the ground and no longer wobbled. The glowing saucer was about 50 feet in diameter, approximately 20 feet from top to bottom. Moody was almost panicking by now. The saucer emitted a high-pitched sound, then an oblong-shaped window appeared right on the center of the object. At the window, there were shadows of what appeared to be two or three humanoid forms. The sound stopped and a numbness came over his body. He was no longer afraid, but instead felt peaceful and calm, like floating on a cloud. Next, the object lifted fast and was gone silently. His car started. He took off thinking the whole sighting had lasted a minute or two, but he glanced at his watch and saw that it was 2.45. Almost an hour and 25 minutes were missing. He told his wife what he had seen once he got home. She thought he looked pale and sick. He didn't mention the missing time and felt that he needed a doctor but was afraid to go. He wrote a confidential letter to official UFO magazine seeking some explanation. He feared for his job. By now he had a rash over his lower body and his back was in considerable pain. He couldn't call in sick because of how the military doctors would respond. Lorenzen told him they'd ship him out. On September 2nd, Lorenzen, an April field investigator, W.C. Stevens, flew to Alamogordo to meet Moody. There was no evidence at the site area, but Moody seemed to transform there. He became agitated and admitted to feelings of apprehension and fear. Lorenzen advised Moody not to talk about the experience and never call APRO from a base telephone, but he did just that multiple times. Moody started doing self-hypnosis and began to remember details, 
but he stopped due to a suggestion that he wouldn't remember any more until some time passed. Now he was suddenly ordered overseas, and the transfer was effective immediately. It was extended to November 29th, so he could make provisions for his family to go with him. He called Lorenzen on October 6th to tell him that he remembered he had been on a spacecraft, but his recall was considerably less than total. So they made plans for him to have regressive hypnosis in early November, before he had to leave. Abruptly, his transfer date was changed to October 29th. The Lorenzans soon caught up in Travis's story, and their mail piled up in APRO headquarters in Tucson. When he checked it on November 15th, he discovered a letter from Moody that had been written while Travis was still missing. In the letter, he described the beings he saw as about five feet tall, with larger heads and no hair. They had larger eyes than us, small ears and noses, and a mouth with thin lips. Their clothing was skin-tight with no buttons or zippers. He felt they could read his mind and spoke without their lips moving. He was taken to a room where a rod-like device was touched to his back and legs due to a scuffle they had when they first made contact. He was taken to a room where the drive shaft of the craft was. After observing this for a half hour, he was told he had to leave and that he wouldn't remember what happened for at least two weeks. The being told him they would meet again, and that in time he would understand why he was taken. Next thing he knew, he was in his car watching the object lift up into the sky. On August 17, 1975, just days after Moody's experience, at 10.23 p.m. in the Navajo Hopi Indian Reservation area, a police officer was driving a Ford Bronco patrol van near Keems Canyon when he suddenly saw a brilliant white light appear behind him. The whole area lit up. He slowed down and turned to see a dark flying object mounted by red, green, and white lights. The lights obscured his view of the object. He stopped and got out, and the area immediately became totally dark. No lights, no object. He soon resumed his patrol. About four minutes later, the Bronco went haywire, with the engine cutting off, the headlights going out, and the two-way radio going dead. All electrical systems failed. Less than 60 seconds later, the lights turned on, along with the engine, and he used the now-functioning radio to report the incident. 25 minutes later, and 30 miles north, near Pinion, Three officers reported unidentified flying objects traveling at low altitudes south of them. The two objects flashed with red and green rotating lights, bisected by a bright white spotlight. Within minutes, they were gone. Almost immediately after, four flashing objects appeared at about 5,000 feet in the direction of Keems Canyon. They were flying in a rectangular formation and seemed to be changing color from red to green to white. The officers didn't know what they were seeing. Then, 60 miles west, 
at Tuba City. Both police and citizens reported seeing brightly lit objects streaking at tremendous speeds across the sky. Investigations by both police and ground saucer watch revealed high residual magnetic traces on the back and roof of the Bronco, burn spots in the scrub brush near the first sighting, and no faulty parts on the Bronco to cause its shutdown. Luke Air Force Base in Arizona and Holloman in New Mexico both reported having flown no aerial missions that could have caused the sightings. The triangle formed by the sighting areas of Tuba City, Pinion, and Keems Canyon were almost identical to the size and shape of the triangle formed by the Holbrook, St. John's, and Pinetop UFO that was observed by Sheriff's Department a week after Travis's return. What makes Travis Walton's case so believable is the fact that the details have never changed. Of the case, folklorist and abduction researcher Thomas E. Bullard said, quote, As abduction stories go, the Walton case was neither lengthy nor complex. But the literature of charges, countercharges, and explanations arising out of the investigation has outgrown the literature describing the incident itself. End quote. On the ride to Mary Kellett's house, after he had returned, in almost a state of delirium, Travis recounted small details of his time on the ship. As I present them to you now, these are the full details, gleaned through hypnosis. Travis's first recollection after being hit by the beam is of pain, an intense ache all over his body that centered on his head and chest. He felt worse than burned, almost as if he'd been broken into a hundred pieces. He was on his back, his mouth was dry with a metallic taste, and his muscles were weak. As his vision cleared, he could see a light above him. It was very hot and humid. The heavy air was hard to breathe. He was still fully clothed, though. There was something flat pressing into his chest. He thought he was in an emergency room. He could just make out that his shirt and jacket were both pushed up under his arms, exposing his chest and abdomen. A strange, shiny, dark gray device about four to five inches thick curved across his exposed body. It was then that he noticed there were forms of people standing over him, one to the left and two on his right. Still confused and not able to focus properly, he felt they were doctors. Then suddenly, they came into focus. He described these beings as horrible creatures with huge, luminous brown eyes the size of quarters. He was terrified and struck out at the two on his right, hitting one with the back of his arm, knocking it into the other. It had felt soft through its clothing. Its muscles yielded with the sponginess. It was light and fell easily. Travis lunged off the table and fell back against a bench. 
The device that had been across his chest fell to the floor where it rocked back and forth on its upper side. Shifting beams of greenish light came from under it. He was still very weak and his body wouldn't move easy. The creatures started toward him with their hands reaching out at him. He reached for a thin, transparent cylinder about 18 inches long and tried to break it to make it a weapon, but it wouldn't break. He lashed out with it toward the beings and yelled at them to get away. They slowed down, but didn't stop. After he kept shrieking at them and crouched down, ready to fight, they finally stopped. They were a little under five feet tall, with a basic humanoid shape with two arms, hands with five digits, and a head with human features. He said beyond that, any similarity to humans was terrifyingly absent. Their thin bones were covered with a marshmallowy-like flesh. They wore coverall suits, orange-brownish in color, that had no seams, buttons, zippers, or snaps. They had simple pinkish-tan footwear with very small feet. They had no fingernails and their hands were small and delicate, soft and unwrinkled. Their bulging bald heads with a small jaw structure with underdeveloped, almost infantile features. They had thin-lipped mouths that didn't open. Their ears were tiny, crinkled lobes, and the noses were miniature and round with small oval nostrils. But the eyes were most shocking to him. They had brown irises twice the size of a human's that were so large that parts of the pupil were hidden by their lids. Very little of the white was showing. There were no lashes or eyebrows. When they would occasionally blink, it gave the appearance of roll-up window shades. Overall, they looked like a human fetus to him. The creatures abruptly turned and scurried from the room. They turned right and exited the door. He was able to momentarily see the details of the room as he decided what to do next. It was irregular with metal walls. There were no seams, rivets, or screws visible. The light fixture, curving bench, and table curved into the surface to which they were attached. It appeared that everything was molded out of a single, continuous piece of material. The metal seemed to be dense and very thick. He looked out the door and saw no sign of the creatures, so he decided to go to the left. Quickly he broke into a frightened run, following the curving hallway. Passing one open door on his left, he ran past it without looking in. But when he saw another coming up on his right, he decided he better look to see if there was a way out. It was a room about 16 feet across, with a dome ceiling about 10 feet high. There was a high back chair in the room that was metal with a leg that curved into the floor. It had buttons and a strange lever on the arms. As he approached the chair, the room became darker and stars came into view that covered the walls and the floor. It was as if he was in space. He pressed one of the green buttons on the right arm of the chair, hoping maybe a door would open. And a screen above it displayed lines that moved. 
He pushed more buttons, but nothing else happened beside the lines on the screen moving. The lever on the left arm of the chairs has a molded T-grip and slightly small for his hand. When he rotated the handle forward, the stars moved in unison, but nothing happened. Hearing a faint sound, he turned and saw what appeared to be a man standing in the doorway. Standing about six feet, two inches tall, extremely muscular, and wearing a tight-fitting blue suit and a helmet, the man gestured for Travis to come to him. He excitedly ran to him, asking him many questions. When the man didn't answer, Travis figured he couldn't hear him through the helmet. The man took him gently by the arm and led him down the hallway through a doorway that opened into a small bare room. Another door opened opposite and a brilliant warm light with fresh air came through. There was a ramp sloping down that took them to a huge room where he could see the craft he had exited. It looked like the one he had seen in the forest, but was much larger and didn't emit a light but had a shiny metal surface. He could see two or three oval-shaped saucers like polished chrome and a reflection of another possible craft off to the side. They passed through the room to another door, down a hallway and through another pair of doors. Travis had been trying to ask the man questions occasionally, but he never responded. They entered a white room that had a table and chair in it. There were three other humans in here, two men and a woman standing around the table. They wore the same uniform, but no helmets. All of these beings shared a family-like resemblance. Travis started asking them questions, thinking they would be able to hear him, but they also didn't answer. The helmeted man placed Travis in the chair and left the room. One of the men and the woman approached him and guided him to the table. He started to resist, but they pushed him down gently. Above him were panels of soft, glowing white lights. The woman suddenly had an object in her hand that looked like an oxygen mask without a tube connected to it. She pressed it down over his mouth and nose. Before he could pull it away, he lost consciousness. The next thing he would remember is waking up on the highway. Nine months after the Travis Walton incident, Muhammad Ali moved his training camp to the area. Ali had long been interested in the subject of UFOs, and while we don't know his exact reason for relocating, it's interesting that the boxing great would choose a place like Snowflake, Arizona to train. Much like the Apache Sitgreaves National Forest, the details of this case remain unchanged. Travis has never added to it, and neither has anyone else involved in it, including the logging crew. Their lives were changed by the events of November 5, 1975, too. But there was one interesting detail to emerge in the previous decade. In the summer of 2014, Travis and others returned to the site to do a field survey. He wasn't really expecting anything to come of it because of how much time had passed, 
but calculations of the tree growth in the vicinity of the site showed that the trees were producing wood fiber at over 30 times the rate they had in the previous 85 years. The effect on the growth diminished the further you got from the spot. Not only was there an extreme growth rate, but it seems there was a directionality to them. Stumps at the four corners of the compass showed a swelling and thickening of the growth rings in the direction that the craft had been and not on the opposite side. On the opposite side was where the thickness was at its minimum. It was posited that the cell growth was possibly caused by radiation. Ben Hansen, a member of this group, went on to see if academic studies had been done on the effect of radiation on tree growth and found a university study out of Poland in 1997 that found that trees that were exposed to radiation after Chernobyl had grown up to three times in volume and had accelerated growth compared to previous years. In the pantheon of UFO cases, to paraphrase a sounder that has appeared on many episodes of Hysteria 51, it's bigger than a Walmart. Travis continues to tell his story at UFO conferences today. At one event, he was asked by a curious party if he was worried they'd come back and abduct him again. He kindly laughed and said, I don't think they liked me. This episode was written and researched by myself and Amber Keller. Script editing by Brian Hasty. Thank you so much for listening. There are a couple of updates I wanted to pass along. Uh, the first is that the show will be going back to a bi-weekly format. I hate doing it, but the burnout is a real problem for me. So um, doing this is going to give me a little more time to get these episodes the way that I want them to be. And I think it'll make the content better. So yeah, going back to a bi-weekly format, unfortunately. Uh, special thanks to some recent podcasters for having me on their pods. I was on one of the most recent episodes of Astonishing Legends along with Rich Haddam, and we had a fun time telling stories and discussing cool paranormal stuff. You can check out their feed for that episode, but if you want to see video of that recording session, it's posted on our Patreon page. $1 a month will get you access to that. Special thanks to Dan Lefebvre for having me on his podcast, Based on a True Story, to talk about the first season of Project Blue Book. Also, big thanks to Maxwell for having me on his podcast, Relic, a lost treasure podcast, to discuss ancient astronaut theory and the like. I also created a list in one of the most recent episodes of the Tenish podcast about the 10 most believable CE3 cases. That was fun as hell to do. And finally, special thanks to Chris Williamson of the Me and My Friends podcast for having me on to talk UFOs. That was fun as hell. He had some great questions and uh, I appreciated every single one of them. If you want to connect with us, Head on over to OurStrangeSkies.com to find links to all our social media pages, as well as our Patreon page and Tee Public Shop. We will be donating all of our May Patreon payments to a COVID-19 relief fund, 
as well as the proceeds from all our Tee Public sales. So if you want bonus content or cool merch and want to support a good cause, consider joining or consider buying some merch. Our next episode is going to be a bit different. We're going true crime for one episode and talking about a case that has fascinated me for years. So I hope you'll check that out. Don't abandon us because we do one true crime case. Seriously, I am fascinated by this case. I put in a buttload of research and I'm excited to share it all with you. Our theme song was composed by Big Cats with additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. And our logo and web design is by the great Desdemona. And finally, don't forget to look up, because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies or floating above the Apache Sitgreaves National Forest. In Gray We Trust.